Right then, Fictoplasm episode 78. Is there already? Wow. Um, Von Beck by Michael Moorcock. Specifically, the collection, the, the first collection in Michael Moorcock's 14-volume Tale of the Eternal Champion, published between uh, 1990 and 1995, I think. Why are we doing this? Well, Michael Moorcock is probably the first author I read that I really, really got into and loved. Not my favourite, absolutely, but such incredible ideas, such vision. And, you know, I was uh, in, in my early 20s, late teens and early 20s, it totally blew my mind to read about multiverses and characters who persisted through alternative realities wearing different faces and characters with mutable roles in the stories but who otherwise existed in multiple realities. Moorcock apparently says that he'd rather be a bad writer with big ideas than a big writer with bad ideas and definitely he has enormous ideas and that is one of the things that you know really gets to me about Moorcock. So this collection was published, uh, as I say, at the start of the 90s, and it was my first real introduction to Moorcock. I had read a little bit beforehand, but it was these big, chunky, oversized books that I really got into. And I took the 14 volumes as a uh, as a reading list, and I read them wherever I could. So I didn't read all of these editions, and I didn't read them all in the same order. I read a lot of the Corum books in the Grafton editions, for example, the sort of mid-80s ones, which are nice. But what I want to do in this series, and it is going to be a series of 14 episodes, is I'm going to talk about one of these volumes in each episode. Now, they're too big to give a proper synopsis for the whole lot, uh, so I'm going to change the format slightly. But what I'm going to do is I will give a sort of brief overview of each of the stories and the collection, and then I'm going to talk about my favourite bits. And then finally, I'm going to talk about their place in the sequence. So this is going to be less about the role-playing aspect, although obviously there'll there'll be a, a few comments here and there, and more about the sequence start to finish as it makes sense. And Moorcock says in his preface to Von Beck, uh, dear reader, this is my first opportunity to publish a completely new edition of the Eternal Champion stories, and I have been helped considerably in this by John Davy, who prepared lists, suggested a reading order, and drew my attention to the best versions of the books, many of which have not until now appeared in England. Ironically, we have attempted to work out a chronology for a history which constitutionally could be the antithesis of conventional chronology. But the story of the Von Becks and their uneasy association with both the Devil and the Holy Grail would, we thought, provide the best way of beginning the sequence. In their different ways, all three of the stories here contain common historical reference, and the various objects of power have, as it were, local names, while the supernatural characters take forms drawn from familiar sources. Here, the wilder stranger realms of the multiverse, which the champion will explore in his or her various guises, as Ericus, Hawkmoon, Corum, Elric and the rest, are only hinted at. I wrote these books rapidly and with pleasure. Although they have continuing themes and develop certain ideas, they were conceived as entertainments to be what I hope is intelligent and imaginative escapism. They were created from the same enthusiasm which I felt for Radcliffe, Scott, Fenimore Cooper, Stevenson, Dumas and Ryder Haggard when I first read them. Which reminds me, 
that I owe an apology here to De Quincey, whose city I made a villain. I have included a revised version of The Pleasure Gardens of Philippe Sagittarius as a further hint at the infinity of possible realities, each subtly different, which exists throughout the multiverse, that decidedly non-linear celebration of our own marvellous minds, that model of all we can imagine, all that we can enjoy. Yours, Michael Moorcock. I said on Twitter that I was coming back to The Warhound and the World's Pain, which is the first one in this sequence, and... I was reminded why this is one of my favourite stories of all. But at the same time, I was thinking, this is a hell of a way to begin a sequence like this. Because whilst I was the, you know, the, the enthusiastic Moorcock reader coming back to the books again and again and again, I'm going to get some of the references that turn up in these books. Someone coming fresh to the sequence and starting with Von Beck may be a bit confused. There's a lot to like about the novels within for their own sake. But you only get, I think, the the real appreciation of them if you are a big Moorcock and Multiverse fan. So I'm going to start with a summary of the novels. The first book, The Warhound of the World's Pain, is an account from Ulrich von Beck in 1680, looking back over the events after May 1631. So von Beck is the titular Warhound, he travels through a cursed forest to a castle, which is the domain of Lucifer, who charges him with finding the Holy Grail, which is the cure for the world's pain, such that Lucifer may be allowed back into heaven and reconciled with God. Von Beck is already damned, but is promised to be freed in this act of service. And this is a knightly quest which takes him through realms adjacent to our own called Middlemarch, and here he meets a companion in Sedenko the Muscovite, an antagonist in Johann Klosterheim, who believes himself an agent of heaven, yet is actually allied with Duke Ariok of Hell, and another character called Philander Groot, the Magus and Hermit. And the goal is to travel to the edge of the world and to the edge of heaven, to the blue-green forest uh, of the Castle of the Grail. Von Beck is gifted elixirs and grimoires from Lucifer to do battle with dragons and demons from hell and to heal his wounds. And he says that, you know, whilst Von Beck is far from pure, his soul is already damned, this quest is likely to purify him sufficiently that he may then handle the, uh, the grail at the end. And at the end, the grail is found, but rather than being a sort of cure-all, it sets humanity on, on this new path, superstition being abandoned in place of reason. Uh, Lucifer relinquishes claim to Earth, but rather than return to heaven, he remains Earth's steward, wielding the grail to usher forth this age of reason as the cure for the world's pain, and Von Beck's soul becomes his own. Now, uh, notably, this first book is dedicated to Jonathan Carroll, who I've uh, I've talked about earlier. Uh, he, he wrote The Land of Laughs. And it does have something in common with Carroll, where Von Beck ventures into these magical landscapes, and we're not quite sure if he's wholly in our world or another. And also, we're not sure if the events are as described, or if he's, you know, tilting his lance at windmills, so to speak. The vibe is very much like Terry Gilliam's Jabberwocky, kind of mixed with Ben Wheatley's A Field in England. Uh, it's definitely my jam. One of my favourite Norcock novels, as I said. And so, as a benchmark, I'd definitely give this five stars out of five for my reading enjoyment. Now, moving on, the second book in the volume, The City in the Autumn Stars, sees Manfred von Beck flee the terror of Paris in 
winter 1974, I think, uh, following his misguided alliance with Robespierre's revolutionaries in Paris, uh, he's pursued by a character called Monsorbia of the Revolutionary Committee, and on his way he meets various other characters, including the Chevalier de saint Audran, a Scottish aeronaut, and Lebusa, the Duchess of Crete. These characters sort of fill the roles of the champion's companion and lover, respectively, but that really oversimplifies them, because both of them have their own agenda, and it's their schemes that Von Beck gets caught up in. For St. Odran, he becomes Von Beck's partner in a confidence scam when they reach Mirenberg, which is a, a, a city not unlike Prague. It's an invented city by Moorcock, and it's also mentioned in the first book. And what they're doing is attempting to attract wealthy investors for St. Odran's balloon. And that they do. But they find they've kind of bitten off more than they can chew when they attract anonymous benefactors who want to be conveyed to a destination of their choosing on the balloon's maiden voyage. And at the same time, Von Beck has other adventures in Mirenberg where he encounters a subterranean satanic cult led by none other than an immortal Johann Klosterheim, who is seemingly cursed to wander the earth after his initial encounter with Ulrich von Beck. So when the two mysterious passengers, these benefactors, turn up incognito, and they turn out to be Klosterheim and Lebusa, the threads are drawn together. To be clear, what what's driven von Beck on is after a chance encounter with Lebusa, the uh, Duchess of Crete, he's been dreaming of her, and dreaming of her at the centre of a labyrinth and the beast within. Uh, and everything that he's done has been directed at meeting up with her in, on her journey forward. So this, to him, seems like fate. And together, Klosterheim and Lebusa, who form this alliance, seek to be conveyed to Mittelmarch and the glorious city in the autumn stars, which seems to be this kind of timeless version of Mirenberg, whose influences from uh, other European cultures are visible throughout in its architecture, in the habits of the citizens and so on. It kind of appears to be this utopia that Mirenberg aspires to. And this starts out as a sort of picaresque romp, but it's laced throughout with this classical occult symbolism. As I mentioned, there's uh, Von Beck has dreams early on of Lebusa and her her relationship to the Minotaur. And um, once we hit the city, this symbolism and the motivations of Klosterheim and Lebusa become very clear. Lebusa's relationship with the uh, with an alchemical secret society is what is driving her plot forward, and the intention is to perform a ritual at the conjunction of a million suns at the centre of creation, right here in the city in the autumn stars. And Von Beck goes on a quest for the Grail, encounters gods in the deep city, uh, which is a sort of spirit world or underworld that's a, you know the spiritual essence of the city in the autumn stars and encounters satan who gifts him with the the sword of pericles which is this magical sword with an eagle a screaming eagle embedded in the pommel at the same time monsorbio who's somehow made his way to the occult city as well chases him through this version of the city uh, and the main battle lines are drawn between von beck Lebusa, and the alchemists on one side against monsorbio and klosterheim's alliance on the other side however these alliances do shift constantly and eventually the conjunction comes Lebusa is crucified and resurrected as the antichrist the sword and the grail are employed in the ritual and a million sons find themselves in Junction, yada yada. But von Beck rejects the ultimate power offered, realizing that you know his notions of reason 
are incompatible with an alliance of what he sees as Satan. And this echoes the end of the previous novel where a new age of reason was intended to replace the age of superstition. There's the talk by Labus's faction that it was going to usher in a new age of occult rule. So this is another hint that it goes against reason. There's no doubt von Beck is transformed by his experience and the, uh, the literal alchemist crucible, but he retains his essential humanity and he rejects superstition and the occult in favour of uh, basically returning to a human existence and in time passing on as a person. I enjoyed this book more than I did when I read it first time, a lot more. Um, however, annoyingly, the specific copy of Von Beck that I have misses out pages 345 to 376 due to a binding error, and instead I got pages 121 to 152 again, and that those come from the first novel. So that misses out a couple of chapters, basically. Thankfully, it doesn't miss out the amazing description of their arrival at the city, and there are enough references in the episodic story that you know, I can basically work out what went on between Von Beck and Reynard the Fox, who's one of the avatars he meets in the deeper city. But it's something to bear in mind if you're looking for a second-hand copy. And this book is also dedicated to Colin Greenland, if you're a fan. Also, I mentioned that it's the second in this volume, but it's not seen as the second Von Beck book. It tends to be seen as the third, because between The Warhound of the World Pain and this book, uh, Moorcock wrote another von Beck book set in Mirenberg in 1900 called the Brothel in Rosenstrasse um, and that occupies the second place that's not a fantasy novel uh, might mention that later but it's less interesting for the eternal champion stuff on then to the third book which is the pleasure garden of Philippe Sagittarius and in this one, Minos von Beck is a metatemporal investigator investigating a strangled corpse with paper lungs in the Garden of Police Chief Bismarck. Other characters include Sagittarius, who is Bismarck's gardener and is actually Johannes Klosterheim in disguise, and Adolf Hitler, who is a uniformed police captain. And it's 12 pages long, and it's written in the sort of psychedelic style of the Jerry Cornelius novels, with these incongruous pop culture references and, and hints at a multiversal existence. And the story is prefaced with the words, For permission to publish the following account, I must thank the present Graf von Beck and Ms. Una person who brought it to me. This further ties von Beck into the wider multiversal cosmology, uh, more explicitly than the other two novels, which von Beck's accounts are... A bit suspect, a kind of hallucination of the wider fantasy worlds of Moorcock. And to illustrate this point, I'm going to pick out some of my favourite bits. I'm going to start with The Warhound and the World's Pain. So the first one is the demon in the sphere at Bacchanax, this plague city that they encounter somewhere in Middlemarch on their way to find the Grail. This city is a it's the source of a local plague. And um, where they, they first encounter these Tartars on the plain, who, who are the last surviving tribe of Tartars and are protected, they think, by a genie which has been gifted to them by Philander Groot. It's in their charge and they think that, you know, the genie's in a pot and if it becomes unstoppable and the genie becomes free, then it would be a terrible force of nature. So it's their job to make sure it doesn't escape. Hilarious things ensue that the genie is actually released. It turns out to be this pathetic creature, this sort of parody of a, what we would imagine a genie to be. Just this tiny sort of emaciated thing that tries to haul its way out of the top of the genie's jar. 
But that's not the only thing they encounter, which is kind of a, a parody of what would be the, you know, what, what we would expect to be Moorcock's fantasy fiction. So our heroes, uh, Von Beck uh, and Sedenko, his sidekick, are informed that the plague originates from this plague city called Bacchanax, and specifically from a demon in the city centre. So they go there to investigate. And what they find, they're, they're, they're apprehended by the uh, local magistrate and police force and told that because they're intruders and they've not played the proper tithes, they will be cast into the sphere with the demon to fight it. Uh, and likely they won't survive. Von Beck is cast into this sphere in the middle and inside he encounters the demon, which is this sort of strong and dangerous creature but it's resentful of the people in the city who've basically been chucking in their their prisoners for it to kill and feed on and it wants to be freed but the fact that it's in a sphere and that it emerges from this milky fluid in the bottom of the sphere calls back to Hawkmoon where uh, if you know the stories the Emperor Hoon has uh, now rules from uh, a glass sphere suspended in a milky fluid so I assume it's an intentional reference that calls back to Hawkmoon. And this is just an ex one example of several things which are kind of the, these strange reflections of the characters we know and the situations we know in the other books. This is also true of the city in the Autumn Stars. I mean, this, this reference to uh, the sort of Pericles with the eagle and its hilt, of course, uh, that is very much like the, the supposed dragon in the sword, and its role at the conjunction of everything is to be freed, uh, behaving very much like Stormbringer does when Elric blows the hand of fate at the end of that age, uh, at the end of the age in Stormbringer. There are callbacks to other novels as well. One of the ones I, w I wouldn't have got unless I'd actually just read uh, this collection back to back with the Brockler Rosa Strasser is the the ritual that Labusa engages in, that where she is crucified. Uh, that is described exactly the same as a service that's provided by one of the women from the brothel. That is about as much of a link there is between the brothel and Rosenstrasse to any of the fantasy fiction. But anyway, there are other references. There, there's a sort of a constant reference to law as a capitalised letter. When Sindondran and Von Beck meet the solicitor, who is the um, who is the go between for their their unknown benefactor they're enter they're brought into their office and they see a statue which is described as that of a great prince of law now of course the the simple explanation is it's it's one of the founders of the uh, law firm but certainly viewing that i would take a slightly different meaning knowing what we know about law and chaos there's mentions of the intersection of the planes and that's that's uh, and the conjunction of a million suns. Of course, the conjunction of a million spheres is a is a feature of the Corum novels and others. And there are also explicit references to beasts and at one point Duke Arioch of Hell. Uh, Zeonbarg appears in the first story. She's the ruler of a valley dwelling civilization in Middlemarch. So there's lots of appearances of things which are if if you're a Morcock reader they'll be familiar to you. But then. There's a very deliberate twist on them, a, 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 and a slight sense that reality is being distorted, or the tale is being distorted by the retelling. 
The other thing I want to mention, of course, is the is Mirrenberg itself. Mirrenberg is described as this sort of utopian city. It's it's likened to Prague. Uh, it is possessed of uh, wonderful and expansive architecture, of which uh, indicates centuries of development. Um, it is a centre of the the arts and enlightened thought. So then, the city in the autumn stars becomes becomes Mirrenberg amped up to 11, as it were. And I'm going to read this passage, which is their arrival in the city in the autumn stars. Scents rose up to us, spices, sweet-smelling trees, shrubs and night-perfumed flowers, coffee, delicate meats and vegetables, cheeses, cakes, pastries, sausages and preserves, aromatic oils, old parchment, leather, mildew, wine, sulphur, wood smoke, dust, hot metal, sewage, lye, human juices, that combination, defeating all true analysis, which was the individual signature of every city. Yet I had never smelt anything so exotic, not even Constantinople, nor yet Alexandria, nor any of those other cities which I had passed on my way from Samarkand, as this Mirrenberg. There was a little of all of them in her, something of London's boisterous eclecticism, of Rome's unconcerned antiquity, of Prague's ornament, and Paris's labyrinthine vitality, of Venice's haughty stink, and Dresden's fragile granite. As a city, she was the sum of mankind's ages, Chaldea, Memphis, Jerusalem, Athens, Berlin, St. Petersburg. She was timeless in her jet-black marble, her clear white alabaster. Her geometry, her angles, planes and curves formed a subtle language. This rhetoric of masonry and mortar described a multiplicity of stresses and tensions, of mutual dependency and irreconcilable contradictions, of deep-rooted permanence and constant change. She spoke, too, of sorrow, of agony, and of joyous celebration. Klosterheim turned his expressionless eyes to look at me. Clumsily he stretched his hand to show me the city, as if he had once tried to show me a snowflake. His voice possessed no resonance. He merely repeated his statement, as if to a simpleton. The city in the autumn stars. Now, I don't know if we can draw any comparison between, say, Mirrenberg as a sort of an eternal repeating city and that of, say, Tanelon, which we've not even touched on yet. Um, but there is a sense, uh, there's a parallel I draw between Mirrenberg, described by Moorcock, and Viriconium by M. John Harrison. I've uh, done that in a previous episode, and Vericonium, of course, it starts off as a very this psychedelic fantasy city, and it gradually becomes more real. Its past ages become more romantic and just viewed on as part of the past, and its present becomes more mundane. And I get the sense, having read, um, first of all, The Warhound of the World's Pain, which, of course, is Root and Superstition, then The City in the Autumn Stars, and then, in uh, in t chronological time, of course, we have the Brothel and Rosenstrasse, where Mirrenberg is a real city, although it's made up, but it's not fantastic at all. But it gives hints that it might once have been a fantasy. Of course, cities are right up my alley. So this description of Mirrenberg throughout these various novels as a number of different ideals is really attractive. 
The last little point I want to make is the ending of the Pleasure Garden of Philippe Sagittarius. The last paragraph reads thus. Once again, I'd gotten to keep the cup, but I told myself this was the last time I played the game. I wanted to go home. I went back up the stairs and I walked away from that house into a cold and desolate dawn. I tried to light my last black cat and failed. Then I threw the damp cigarette in the rubble, turned up the collar of my coat and began to make my way slowly across the ruins. It's not exactly clear what the ruins are here. Muremberg is raised to the ground by Holzhammer in the Brothen Rosenstrasse about a hundred years after the city in the autumn stars. Could these be the ruins? And of course, Morcott wrote The Breakfast in the Ruins as a sequel to Behold the Man. The last thing I want to talk about then is the importance of this as a first novel in the 14 volume sequence and the significance of Von Beck. Now, as I said, uh, there are three Von Beck novels that were written from 1981 was The War Handle World's Pain, 82 was The Broth and Rosenstrasse, and 86 is The City in the Autumn Stars. After that, we get The Dragon in the Sword, which features Von Beck, I think, and that will turn up in the second volume, The Eternal Champion. The next time Morcock writes about Von Beck, it's in the mid-90s for the second Ether series, that's that's Blood, Fabulous Harbours, and The War Amongst the Angels. That's out of scope for this sequence. But the other thing that Moorcock has done, and he does it with the Pleasure Gardens of Philippe Sagittarius, is that he's retroactively added Von Beck into some of his old short stories. I don't know who was in the original Pleasure Gardens of Philippe Sagittarius, uh, but it was written in 1966, and uh, there are Several others. Flux was written in 1979 and I believe retroactively changed as well. And I think Flux also turns up something like volume five of this sequence. I have to wait till we get to it. So what he's done is basically embedded Von Beck into the multiverse. There's an argument that Von Beck is the eternal champion in at least one of these examples. I mean, the, the first story, Von Beck is kind of the eternal champion and Sedenko is the champion's companion. But I think that Von Beck is something slightly different. It's kind of a reverse of John Dacre, who is, you know, the eternal champion who can remember his other incarnations. It's kind of a thing that the multiverse remembers. It's a bloodline that exists throughout multiple strands of the multiverse. Somehow the Von Beck family is present at all these major events. They have been charged to do the devil's work and have a relationship with the Holy Grail, of course. And that's what the reference is to the end of the, in the end of the third book. But I kind of feel they're here more as witnesses to everything else that's going on. The other constant, a fairly mutable character that appears throughout The Eternal Champion, are characters with the initials JC or occasionally JK, like Johannes Klosterheim. And here... Johannes Klosterheim is uh, is a villain. In other cases, uh, they are the eternal champion, um, or they are a sidekick, or they are they are, they take on the role of a mentor figure. And I kind of get the feel that they're kind of two sides of the same coin. Von Beck is possibly one of the realest characters in the multiverse because they are they're kind of a constant, a baseline for observing the rest of the multiverse doing its thing and revolving around itself. 
Whereas Jerry Cornelius, uh, Jesus Christ, Johann Klosterheim, Jerick Carnelian, and all of those other characters are, they are some sort of avatar, some sort of memory that the multiverse has of a particular avatar that is nonetheless swept up in everything that happens and is more or less existing as uh, at the whims of the multiverse and fates. I'm sure there'll be more to talk about these characters in the future, but I think it's worth bearing in mind that they are not avatars. They're not occupying a specific role in the story. What they're doing instead is actually stamping a name on the story, being people of significance. They have, in both cases, a reputation that goes before them. Anyway, I've prattled on for about half an hour, so I am going to call it a day. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this, please like, share and subscribe. The music, as always, is by Chris Abriski. Find out more at chrisabriski.com. Thanks for listening. Bye.